Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 67, recorded on May 2nd, 2017. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. I was thinking this is episode 67, still younger than you are. <laughs> <laughs> but just barely. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, uh, even though I have a child who's a Red Sox jinx. I am not a Red Sox jinx. I So it is true that I have been to three games this season, and they have lost all three games. But I would also like to point out that all three of the games I went to have also been freezing cold. And maybe it's possible that the Red Sox are wimps and they just don't play well in the cold. Well, at least you got on the Jumbotron yesterday. I did. It was my very first time ever going to a stadium and getting on the Jumbotron. It was pretty exciting. And, you know, every time I've ever watched it, uh, when they show the crowd and you see somebody, like, not realizing they're on and then all of a sudden realizing it and then waving and, like, poking every like their friend that they're with to say, like, hey, I'm on the Jumbotron. And I always think, like, oh, that's so stupid. How do you not know that you're on the Jumbotron, I'll, you know? And then, of course, it happened to me where I'm, like, sitting there and then everybody's screaming and then I suddenly look and I'm like, oh, it's me. And then I'm poking my friend to be like, hey, hey, look, we're on the Jumbotron. I mean, it was ridiculous. I did everything cliched that you could humanly do. So there you are. But it so was now one moment we know. of glory. You're just another person. And yes, the Red Sox lost again. <laughs> it's pretty sad. It was pretty sad, I have to say. And like the worst part of the Red Sox losing, and I know this isn't a sports podcast, so I'll be brief about this, but I will just say, which is they have lost spectacularly every time I've been there. It hasn't been like a close game or like a, it's been a, like they pooped on their faces kind of game where they just fell down into the dirt. So that sounds really unattractive. Yeah, it kind of was. So you're least... going to be banned. I, well, I will say I got my uh, Henley Ramirez necklace yesterday. They were giving them away to the first, however, bajillion people who come in. And the funniest part about it um, is so that it's so it's this huge, obviously made of plastic, but gold colored like chain with like a big gold 37 that also says, uh, you know, Nuro Trece. And like it has like these fake diamonds all over it. Wait a minute. Trece is 37? 13. Once, doce, trece. Yeah. It's 13, which yeah, is the okay. number. Did I say 37? Yeah. I didn't mean to say 37. It says number 13. Even so I, no with my pathetic graph. <laughs> Spanish knew that it wasn't. No. Treinta y siete would be 37. Anyway, so it's, it's trece for number 13. Anyway, so he... Uh, obviously looks styling in that. But the hilarious thing is, of course, everybody who's wearing it looks ridiculous. Like, you know, whether it's a little kid wearing it and it's just like this ginormous, you know, run DMC style, huge, you know, jewelry, or whether it's these, you know, very Boston guys who sure have never worn a necklace in their lives, you know, wearing their caps and their, you know, baseball hoodies and then rocking this ginormous gold 13, you know, or girl, like it was just, it was hilarious. I didn't see a single person who I was like, oh, yeah, that looks totally natural on you. You totally could wear that. And nobody would say anything. Everybody just looked like they were wearing a ridiculous costume. It was kind of funny. And it was nice to see people just in good spirits, you know, about it. So I thought it was fun that people put them on. You can put it next to your, um, is it your Mookie Betts bobblehead? I can put it next to my bobblehead. But, you know, I was thinking also just about it is that, like, disconnect of what you expect people to look like or things that you uh, think they should be and then they're not that I actually I actually relate this back to an art thing which is the reason that people stop in front of a painting or a work of art of any kind is because you do something to grab them and it could be that it's like so unbelievably beautiful that it grabs them but a lot of times I think it's that there's like a disconnect and in that moment of energy or tension or whatever it's like you stop because you want to understand what the disconnect is, you know, or at least maybe that's the work that I stop in front of that I think is interesting. I mean, I was even thinking that, um, oh man, now I'm going to lose the artist's name completely. Who is the artist who of course did the, you know, businessman with the apple for the face? Oh yeah, Magritte. Yeah, Magritte. So he's a surrealist and all of his paintings have this kind of like, it's a picture of something you know, but something's wrong. One of my favorites of his is it's the, it's a street scene the sky is a bright blue with beautiful, like, um, cumulus clouds. And then 
the street itself, though, is completely dark with the lamps lit that it's night. And so you look at the painting, you think, oh, what a pretty scene. And then suddenly you go, wait, that's a day sky with a night Mm -hmm. earth, you know. But it, like, takes a minute for you to sort of see the hilariousness or the, the juxtaposition of the two things against each other. And I think, um, I don't know, I think a lot of the art that I like in a sort of more esoteric way is like, you know, some very straight and even lines with something very like curvy and rough. Some very, uh, you know, a, a face that you've seen a thousand times, but the colors are different. I mean, we, you and I went to the Matisse exhibit again. So that's like trip number three for me, trip number two for you. Um, and we brought my aunt and uncle, right? Your sister uh-huh. and her husband. And I know that when we were standing there looking at some of the stuff, because every time you go to an exhibit, you see something different. One of the things we did talk about was about how in Matisse's sort of simplifying and planing. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the baby? And I mean the kind of planing that's P-L-A-N-I. Uh, P-L-A-N-I-N. And thank you, Angie. I knew I was spelling it correctly. Anyway. Uh, that you're kind tired of today. I, I can am. see that. Yeah. Oh, you're looking at me and saying I look tired. That's a great thing to say to a woman is you look <laughs> tired. Um, anyway, ma'am, I'm just old now, mom. You'll it's never possible. be as old as I am. So stop trying. Well, there you go. Uh, anyway, what I was saying is like that actually what he's doing is taking the juxtaposition of like an image that you know so well, the human figure, and then making it slightly off so that you stop. And you look, right? It's slightly reduced. It's slightly different. The colors are odd. It's elongated. Yeah, it's elongated. Yeah. It's stretched. It's flattened. I mean, Picasso's doing that when within his cubing phases or even in his monumental phase or his blue period where he's stretching things. I mean, there are so many artists, I think, who I don't necessarily know that that's a conscious choice they're making, but they're doing it i mean i look at max beckman's work sometimes and those huge sausage fingers that he has in everything and yet they're so expressive and it's like i know what a hand looks like and i know what that looks like and i stop in front of his hands every time and just go whoa what's happening here something's wrong because i think we have this animal instinct right we want things to look right so i almost think that when things are photorealistic like if i look at goya who was like masterfully photorealistic in his painting I almost breeze past his work because it's like, yeah, that looks right. Great. Good job. You know? And like, I understand that that is spectacular and amazing, but it doesn't, it doesn't invite me in the way that something that's incongruous invites me. Since we're on the topic of the MFA, it happened to be the first day of art in bloom when we went there last week with my sister and her husband do you want to talk about that? We had some conversations about they they have flower arrangements at certain uh, points in the museum to coordinate with the art. And I thought some were very successful and some were less successful. And we had a conversation about that. Yeah, so I am going to show pictures of that exhibit, just so you know, so you're not like left wondering what's happening. But, Mom, you actually know a lot about flowers. You have taken Ikebana flower arranging classes. You also are a lover of flowers and like actually know all the names of the flowers and all that kind of stuff. So from a knowledge-based perspective, did, did you want to share your point of view? Well, uh, first, let me just say names of flowers. I actually dated a guy whose mother was one of, I think, seven or eight sisters, each one of whom was named after a flower. Just this random knowledge. Well, but by the way, as random knowledge, I can't believe this is the first time you're sharing this with me because when I was little and I used to write stories, I used to write them about girls who were like named Rose and Lily. And so I had one series of sisters that were like that. And then I had one series of sisters that were named after months and they were May and June and Augusta. Hmm. So I'm just saying. So apparently this woman must have had these her these children when she was seven years old, and that was her idea of fun names to give. And that was remarkable. <laughs> uh, so I thought there were times when the flower arrangement captured the feeling of the artwork, whether it was a sculpture or a bowl or a painting. And there were other times when it it reflected the color maybe, but not 
the feeling. Maybe sometimes the selection of flowers would be very kind of domestic and the painting would be something much more uh, far afield or it would be flowers that they wouldn't have used in the period that the painting is from. And then other times, I really got the feeling that there was a relationship. So uh, I think it, the persons who, de who designed the flower arrangements with knowledge of what was used in that period or went beyond just color and general shape of the of the arrangement and also who used an appropriate container. To me, the container is part of the arrangement and some of the arrangements had very uh, interesting containers and some of them had just standard black uh, floral, any arrangement containers as if that wasn't part of the arrangement, but it really, it detracted for me. That's my two cents. I think your two cents is, is worth five cents, Mom. Thank you. But the thing is, I actually think that for me, it was really a study in how people respond to art. So I think it's some people walk up to a piece of art and what they take away is there's a stroke of red on the left side. So I'm going to put a red flower on the left side of my arrangement. The bottom of it is yellow. So I'm going to put some yellow flowers on the bottom and, you know, and the right side of it is green. So now I have greenery there. And then they say, okay, this is my response to this painting. And it's a very like, uh, and reproductive yes it's a very sort of like surface of like of, or a response like this completely visual i see this i reproduce it as this and i think that's a valid do you know what i mean choice it doesn't appeal to me as much but i see it then i think there are the people who were like okay well i want this arrangement to feel like it could have come out of this painting so then those are people who are looking for stuff that's like in the time period, in the climate. Okay, this is a Spanish painting. I want to find, you know, flowers that have that are from Spain and like have that like feeling of, you know what I mean? And they're they're trying to like locate it within the world, you know. Then I think there are some people. So so when I used to direct plays, we talk about a great difference between a play's plot and a play's story. Right? The plot of a play is pearls on a string. X happens, Y happens, Z happens, you know, boom, boom, boom. And you can't reorganize, right, the plot. The plot of the play is the plot of the play. The story of the play, that I think is what each director and actor team brings, you know. And so you can actually do the same play and it can have a different story from the perspective of the people who are putting it together. You know, because maybe one time, I mean, let's take a play that everybody knows, The Wizard of Oz, okay? So the most basic idea of it is that the story of The Wizard of Oz is, uh, you know, seeking home. Whatever that may mean to you. Every character in that, in some sense, is seeking home, okay? Uh, and so, but somebody could do The Wizard of Oz and say, you know, actually, for me, this story is about being true to yourself, which also is a valid interpretation, but actually from an acting and directing perspective and even from a design perspective, you would interpret it differently. Even though seeking home and being true to yourself may not necessarily be that different, but they actually kind of are. So again, like the story of a painting versus the plot of a painting, and I'm thinking of plot as like color here, color there, you know, whatever. And the story of it is more like the overall feeling that you get so it may actually have nothing i mean look nothing like the work but it tells the same story and i think what you're saying is you like those story-based pieces more and obviously i mean the wonderful like the the winner winner chicken dinner moment is when it sort of all comes together and it right. reflects the painting visually it reflects the painting story it reflects the time period so All the that third kind, of kind that you were about to start talking about, the third kind of floral response would have been the ones that gave me the same kind of feeling. Yes. Yes. And I'm thinking actually very specifically of a piece, which I will share, um, which is, was of a man. He may have been a priest or something, but very severe looking man. 
and there was an arrangement next to it. I think he might have been a judge. Is oh. that possible? I don't know. I think they the, all wear I know black robes and white collars, and I can't tell the difference. Uh, he looked severe regardless and serious. And so the arrangement was also severe and serious, and yet it wasn't like an interpretation of a man. It was an interpretation of like the feeling that he gave me, and I could have seen that that pot of flowers in the painting with him and I could have seen it. I, it, it was almost to me like an extension of his world because mm-hmm. it's, I was like, Oh, I understand what this man's house looks like. It has this floral arrangement or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he is, he, that is him. It's almost as if, you know, when people say like, what animal are you? And sometimes people are really good at pinpointing the animal they are. And sometimes you're like, what? You're not an eagle. There's no way that you could be an eagle. You're a crazy person if you think you're an eagle, right? How about a gerbil? Well, or gerbil or whatever (laughs) it is. You know what I mean? And it's like, I totally think that this is a situation like that, right? Where it's like, this to me was a moment when either somebody just captured something about the painting, the person in the painting, the something that you went, yes, I feel it. I vibe it. Do it. Now you just have me thinking, what animal am I? And I can't. <laughs> I can't figure it out, so let's move on. I vote that you're a Siamese cat. Hmm. I think there's a there's a criticism buried in that, but okay. Well, how could that be a criticism? Siamese cats are so nice. They I like, like Siamese cats, but I, I think you you're saying aloof. I'm not saying aloof. I'm saying people have often said you don't own a cat. A cat tolerates letting you live in the house. Fair. And I don't even have you in my house. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, cats just, cats are in charge. And I think that's how you are, too. Um, okay. So, so the last time we talked, you were about to teach the class in Watertown. For the first time, you were having a class in your space that you were renting. Yes. And how did that go? So it was fantastic. I was super nervous. I couldn't sleep. Like I had all that nervous stuff, blah, 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 blah. But it was really great. I mean, first of all, the students were so wonderful. And I had seen a bunch of them actually in Connecticut fairly recently. Um, And some others of them last summer um, out in uh, Eastern Mass. Sort of on the way to the It's a little south of us. Southeastern? Anyway, my geography, not great. Um, but so that was nice to see a lot of familiar faces. Um, and it's rewarding to know that people are willing to travel to see you because it's, it's worth it to them. Yeah, that is really nice. But I will also say this, which is one of the things that I like so much about a two day class or a three day class or a five day class or whatever it is. As I find myself gravitating more and more as a teacher towards multi-day classes because there's only so much you can cover in a one-day class. It's very surfacey, and for me, it's more fun to delve more deeply to see deeper aha moments. And even more than that, people who have taken a class with me before, when they come back again, they're already in a different space than the people who have never taken a class with me like they get the rhythm they understand the way the things are going to be they have some knowledge of techniques and ideas and you know I see now that it would be a really nice situation to be able to like teach locally quite a bit and then have some advanced classes that are really just for students who have taken a number of classes you know with you previously so that you have a language already that exists between you um, but yeah, I mean, as always, whenever I teach, I find myself invigorated and excited and, and, and wanting to create and all that kind of stuff. And this was no exception. Um, and you know, the junk journal has become such a staple of my everyday life that I don't really think about it that much, but when you teach, you have to think about why you're doing things so that you can explain to somebody else why they would want to do it or how to do it. And so it it sort of was a great opportunity to examine those things that I have so incorporated into my art life that they seem second nature and to really have to think about it and to explain it to other people, which I think is a good time to examine stuff, you know, and decide whether you like what's going on or you don't or if you want to change anything. 
Do you find that this idea of having the same or having people be familiar already with you, has that carried over to the online class where you're doing a second level of stamp carving, the carving for, for so repeating patterns? The, the, are, so, or are they so, all new people? No. So, I mean, one of the things I said is you have to be able to know how to carve a stamp. And so, you know, that was a prerequisite to taking the class. Um, but what I find is there just aren't there aren't a lot of questions, you know. Most huh. online classes that I teach, there are a lot of questions. People have a lot of questions. Um, which, by the way, I make I try to make a huge effort not to have a lot of questions because I try to anticipate what the questions are, you know. Um, but this has been like the only questions I've really run into have been technical questions, you know, about the videos working or about. Um, you know, where to post pictures and stuff like that. But people don't seem to have questions about the material, which is kind of exciting and wonderful. So it either means I'm the most amazing teacher in the entire world who perfectly creates lessons or, or that the students are really getting what they need out of it, which is, makes me feel really gratified because you, I, I really yeah. wanted to teach this sort of like design design class. I would love to see if they're posting a blog post which shows some of the designs that they've created. Yes. Once Will the class that, has um, once the class has wrapped, I planned to uh, show some pictures of what's going on. Um, we've got two more weeks. Is that right? Two more weeks of class, I think. You're asking me. I know. I'm asking you. My brain is addled. But yes, I believe we have two more weeks of class. Okay. Uh, let's talk about something that, on the surface, doesn't seem like it would be art. Sheep shearing. Yeah, so I groaned when you said you <laughs> wanted to go to the sheep shearing festival. And I was like, I really, I mean, sheep are stinky. I've been around sheep. And, like, watching sheep struggle while somebody, you know, cuts their fur off is not my, it's not First fur. place, it's not fur. It's wool. What is it called? Is wool. it just called wool? Okay. Yeah. Cuts their wool off is not, like, the most exciting thing. Um, but it turned out to be fabulous and not even because of the sheep sharing part of it, but because there were crafts because where there is wool, there is yarn and where there is yarn, there is crafting and where there is crafting PS, there is food. But anyway, <laughs> so, uh, I have never in my whole life been interested in rug hooking. And if you asked me about rug hooking, I would have rolled my eyes so far into my head and been like, Ugh, right? Which is rude, but anyway, I would have. But then this woman was doing this primitive rug hooking, and her patterns were so cute and interesting, and the and style was not the kind where you like have to knot individual pieces of yarn. It's just you sort of push and loop it through. It was fascinating to me. And the results were gorgeous rugs and pillow covers and trivets and all sorts of stuff that I love. So I bought a kit. Which I'm super excited about. And now, of course, they have beginner kits. And then they have advanced kits. And No, it was intermediate kits. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They have beginner kits and intermediate kits. And I had to buy an intermediate kit, even though I've never done it before. Because that's the design that I liked. So now I have this ginormous mini rug. It's like, it's like doormat sized that I have to sit down and make at some point. Which I'm really excited about. But I want to have the time to actually do it. So I'm going to reserve it maybe for a trip or something else where I just can throw myself into it. I can't wait. I'm very excited. Don't try do to touch talk it when it's done. Do you want, I'm going to walk all over it. Did you want to talk about any of the other crafts? Yeah, I bought some other crafts that were really nice. So I always love pottery and handmade pottery is one of those things I think is so beautiful. I've made some pottery, but you have to have such a setup and it's so much physical work and like it's just not an easy craft if you don't have easy access to like a kiln and a studio and all that kind of stuff. So I often buy handmade pottery. It's That's one of those things that's worth it to me. So I bought a beautiful little pitcher with a uh, tree on it that I really, really like. Um, I looked at some other beautiful pottery that had hand uh, painted elements on it. The problem with that, although I did look at a picture there, is I often ask the potters, can this go in the dishwasher? You know, no. can this go in the microwave, can this, whatever. And most, and most of the time they say no. 
But I have found some handmade pottery that can and that is dishwasher safe. And I just find for myself, for the way that I use stuff, Mm. when I buy plates and dishes and stuff like that, I need them to be dishwasher safe and coffee cups and all that kind of stuff you know it's too hard when they're not um so uh anyway so then the thing that i'm most excited about is i found this guy's a wood turner and he had brought all these gorgeous pieces of wood now one of the things that i liked is he had some of the traditional like beautiful hand-turned bowls which i i think are beautiful but i find them boring um but what he had that i loved is he had all these bowls that would were were how shall we say broken spoiled ruined no 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 they were either built with a burl included or with live edge and they no 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 you don't even know the whole story you came oh. late to the game the one of the bulls i bought was broken ah. and he decided instead of repairing it that he would just polish it up the way that it was and leave it which bowl is that it had been so okay so it's the bowl that has the two cracks out of the sides and what happened was he had first he had found so wood has a surprise in it. Sometimes when you cut open the piece, you discover that this bug has burrowed into it and created these kind of inky lines in it, which are really cool and they look like illustration almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had found that. But one of the things that happens is that this also makes the wood very weak. So when he turned the bowl, the edges cracked out. Hmm. And at first he tried to repair it, he said, but then he decided to embrace these two missing chunks out of the sides of the bowl, you know, and just um, finish it and leave it alone. And, you know, he he didn't even have it out on the table, but I had seen another piece of his that had a live edge. And I said, do you have anything else like this? He's like, well, I have this broken one. And he whips it out and I was like, sold. I will take the broken one. Because to me, it was so beautiful, you know, in its in its brokenness, I guess. That's I a really kind of a Japanese it. attitude. They have an attitude about, for example, pottery. Yes, you and put they it in the kiln, it you're not quite sure what's going And something happens, and it could be called a mistake, or it could be called a happy circumstance. Yeah, and they fix a lot of their mistakes with gold to highlight the imperfection because there is the beauty in the imperfection. Or the Native American culture where you purposely put imperfections into your work, you know? Anyway, I, mean, I think your bowls are gorgeous. Anyway, but the second bowl I bought, you're right, is just, it's a burl from a tree, and the burl is very much intact on the bottom, and then the inside of it is all, you know, cleaned out and beautiful. And I just thought that they were... And he did make some repairs in the cracks of that bowl with resin um, that has a turquoise blue, like, powder floating in it. And it looks really cool. And, again, it, I was just rem- – I think the things that I like are, again, we go back to that incongruous. Like, that blue stuff in this wooden bowl doesn't make any sense. You know, this burl on the outside but the smooth inside. This beautiful turned bowl and yet it's broken on two sides. I mean, I like – I like those things. I like those imperfections. I like, I like faces that aren't pretty. I like that, but that are like aggressive and interesting. I like artwork that has energy. I like, I like all those kinds of things. And I think, I think the beauty of art or crafts or any of that handmade stuff is that we all like different things. And Every, every time, like in this 100 faces project that I'm doing, all the time I post faces and people say, oh, I like that. And I think, you like that? That's the ugliest thing I've ever made. Or I post something and I'm like, this is so beautiful. And nobody says anything. And you think, what, people? This is the best piece of art I've ever made. And it just, that for me is just about we all have different tastes, you know? In fact, okay. one of the pieces of mine that sold recently, because I'm selling all of my hundred faces, and I was surprised it's one of the ones I like the least. I won't tell the person who bought it. Um, but I was glad that that person obviously loves it. Okay, let's move on to, we are still going to museums, and we went to an opening at the Institute of Contemporary Art. Yes, and I will have a blog post showing some pictures from that. Um, It was an an opening of of an artist named Nari Ward. And one of the fun things about contemporary art is that the artist is alive. It's alive. And so Nari Ward was, in fact, at the opening 
with lots of people floating around him like hummingbirds. Um, and his work, I kept saying, I know it's an overused word, Mom, but I kept saying every single time I passed a little so museum sign on the wall, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, have you read, did you read this? It's so interesting. Oh, ooh, this is interesting. So a lot of times with contemporary art, I have a whole the emperor has no clothes feeling where I'm just like, why? Why, why, why? But this one, I really appreciated the intellect, the intent, the uh, the sort of community is the wrong word, but the um, sort no, of... No, but it's very much of the streets. Yes. It's very much... He, he worked or he works in Harlem mm -hmm. in a, probably a brownstone or something. And he collects things in the streets sometimes. And he has a, it has a very urban feel. It does. It has a very urban feel and he does a lot of social stories, but it also has a connection to art through time. Mm -hmm. Like it, mm -hmm. you can see in it where he's coming from and how he's reinterpreting work that's come from before and a lot of it is about race not all of it but a lot of it a lot of it feels personal in a way that i think is exciting and important you know i get a sense of who he is from his work um a lot of it is garbage basically repurposed which is also i think an exciting way of making art in fact there's an exhibit at the mosesian art center uh right now that's about reclaimed or you know garbage made into art and I think that that whole idea of taking something lost and turning it into something you know found is is kind of lovely what so about I liked it what about uh we also wandered from his exhibit and you found something in their recent acquisitions, I think that spoke yeah, to you. Yeah, there was. It's a Henry. What is his last name? Henry something or other. Um, but you know, so often I feel like contemporary art is either sarcastic or uh, negative, or uh, I don't know how else to put it. But it's not sort of like angry. Yeah. Sad. Or it's, sort of like ugly like I wouldn't hang it in my house or I like can appreciate the intellect I mean I'll say this about Nari Ward there was nothing there that I particularly was like I want to hang this in my house there, was, there wasn't a lot of like beautiful stuff but it was interesting stuff whereas this Henry Taylor piece um, was beautiful and was these three faces and I just loved the way he had done the coloration and the way that he sculpted the faces, there was some Matisse simplification in it that I really appreciated, but there was a real point of view and a perspective. And I I like contemporary art that is figurative, obviously. I find that museums don't collect a lot of figurative contemporary art. I think abstract and theoretical work is much more... I don't know, cool or whatever, but so I appreciate it when I see work like that. I really, really like it. I started following Henry Taylor on Instagram, actually. Oh. He doesn't post a lot, sadly. He's too busy making art. I guess so. <laughs> right now you're very busy because you're starting to make projects for the next season of Make It Artsy, the TV show that you do for PBS. I am. I'm making lots of projects. I'm kind of excited. I have some screen printed fabric uh, drying upstairs as we speak. I w was covered in red paint, but a few minutes before we started this podcast. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in with that show and pushing people further. So I never want to present a show where the projects are so hard that people who are watching who aren't crafters turn it on and go, ugh, I could never do that. But I also don't want projects that are so easy that people who have had many years creating are going to look at it and say, eh, what's the point of watching this? Everything, I know how to do everything on here. So that's an interesting thing about how do you create that balance and then, of course, do it all in a seven-minute segment. So Paint the Sistine Chapel inside <laughs> a cereal box. Exactly. So what I try to do is uh, 
have a mixture of things. So like, let's say that this project is really for somebody who's entry level. But then when you do the more advanced projects, you have to have portions of it that still appeal to a beginner. Or sometimes I'll say, well, for the advanced person, here are some big like design thoughts, whys, hows, whatever. And for the beginner, like here's just the one, two, three of how you get it done. So for instance, right now, this segment that I'm working on is about using stencils to screen print. And so there's a like, hey, you can buy this stuff to make it this process work for you. Or, you know, here's the DIY version that you can do. So it gives people options. And that way, the same technique kind of works for different levels of creators. A bunch of people have said, where can I find this? Yeah, so this is the number one most frustrating thing to me on earth because so it 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 will be on the Create Network this fall. It was supposed to be on the Create Network last fall. Create is the PBS network that shows all like DIY kind of shows. Um, but there were some, there's just, anyway, there's just some endless problems with the feed and that it's all technical. It's not interesting. But anyway, the point is it will be on the Create Network this fall. In the meantime, you can find it on select PBS stations just now. And you can watch a new episode online every month or every every week, rather. And you can buy a DVD if you want, really want it, you know, uh, they have everything there for you. But yes, this fall, I have been promised and sworn now up and down. Definitely, it's on the Create Network this fall. And you're going to HSN again for the billionth time next week. I am, and I'm excited because, oh, that reminds me, I have to get a manicure. I totally forgot about that. Anyway. Um, I am excited because I think I went to, I think I talked about it, my HSN training or whatever that I went to last time, but that was mm -hmm. like right on top of the show. But now I've had a little time to think about it. So I'm excited to see how the presentation will change and evolve. We've also got a new bundle that I'm excited about. So, uh, I think it'll be a good visit. It'll be a quick in and out. You've been wearing all your clothes that you bought at the Emporium. I have been. I like my $5 pants. Watertown Art Association. Yeah, so this was something totally unexpected. So I when I first um when I first moved here, I looked up like what was happening in Watertown and I saw that there was a Watertown Art Association. So I decided to join it because it was a $25 dues. And I thought, what's the harm, right? So then I got a newsletter that said they were having an annual show. And I was like, okay. And they said, for $15, you can put two pieces into the annual show. And I thought, okay, I have $15. And this will be an opportunity for people to see my art. And actually, you came over and we talked about which paintings should go into the show and we were like well I like this one and then this one shows some range because it was like let's not put in two faces let's do an abstract and a regular face to show like you know yada yada so then I dropped my I filled out my paperwork and I dropped my paintings off you know uh, actually yes and and I will say this we had no idea yeah, we had no idea what to uh, expect, and like organization in transition, they're trying to get younger. Yeah, I talked to some people, so they're trying to. It's particularly, I guess, it has it has historically been an organization for seniors, and they're trying to make it into an organization that's younger and more for um, working artists and stuff. But that's a that's a tough transition to go from hobbyists uh, into professionals. But so anyway. Uh, so I got to the show and I picked up a program and all of a sudden I saw that there was uh, that there were stars in the program. So I went to the key to see what the stars meant and I saw that they were prize winners and I did not know that there were prizes that were going to be given. So that was a surprise. And then I looked at the list of prize winners and I was shocked and amazed and thrilled down to my toes um, to discover that my painting had won first place in the acrylic and oil category. So that was super exciting. So then we just sat there and watched people watch, look at your... <laughs> Look at your painting. 
Yes, but one of so I had a couple really great moments that I liked doing that. One was there were some little girls, and this is by the way why they have signs in museums, which I always thought were stupid, but now I understand. These girls were probably tweens, like 12, 11, 12, and they just without without even thinking that there was anything wrong with it, just started touching my paintings. Now, both of the paintings I submitted are quite impasto, so they're very textured, and I understand the desire to touch them, and, like, it's not really going to hurt them if a couple little girls touch them, so, like, what's the big deal? So I didn't say anything, but I was like, well, that's interesting, and that in some ways actually makes me feel, you know, I didn't notice them touching any other paintings, so yeah. something about my paintings made them want to touch them, and I thought that it was invited them. I invited I them. That's, that's a good thing. Um, then towards the end of the exhibit, there was a young man who came in with an older woman and she was sort of dragging him in and she was like, oh, this is so-and-so. She was introduced. I was eavesdropping. She was introducing him to a friend of hers and saying, this is so-and-so. I work with him. I, I thought he should come by. And he's like, oh, I've never really seen like an art exhibit or whatever. And so he came in. Um, and oh, I should say, so he was a young African-American man. And so he came in and he sort of went straight to my painting and he said, oh, is that a black guy? And I thought it was wonderful because it was a moment for me where I felt like he was seeing himself reflected. And yet, you know, not 20 minutes before somebody else had said to me that they thought that she in the painting, right? looked like a familiar to her and so that was her own interpretation of her seeing somebody else that she knew in it and it was like I just felt like you know it was one of those moments where someone was responding and seeing themselves in it or a reflection of someone they knew and I thought that that happened several times which made me very excited and happy I also you know I go out of my way to paint sort of ethnically ambiguous faces I think it's potentially because I am ethnically ambiguous you know um a lot of people have no idea what race I am or assign all kinds of races to me. And so I find it, um, I find it interesting. Let's use that word where I find it compelling and exciting and important. Well, to, you actually find it natural and to, natural to create faces that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, white, but more ethnically ambiguous for lack of a better term. So I liked that, that painting for some people straddled the line. The other exciting comment I got is the first time someone came over to me and said, you know, I didn't see the face at first, but then I saw it and I was like, wow. And I thought, you didn't see the face at first. It's a painting of a face, right? <laughs> it's two ginormous eyes. They're looking right out at you. Nose, but I was like, okay. But then like five other people were like, I didn't see the face. I, when I, I didn't like it at first, but then I stepped back and I saw the face and I was like, what? And I just kept thinking, what? How are these people? But it was great because that was information for me. About this painting, which, you know, I'm very close to. And also, I look at my paintings in a camera all the time because that's how I share. And a camera reduces things. So, of course, you see the face. So, it was kind of exciting to think all these people didn't know there was a face until they stepped back from it. So, that was cool, too. A magic painting. Yeah, it feels like a magic painting. And the, oh, the other discovery that I had that was a big discovery, which I said to you at the time was, so my house is filled with my art. I mean filled. I mean floor to ceiling filled. Um, so <laughs> it is, if, if color and pattern and energy could throw up on canvases, that is what I have done. And so it feels like, I can only say to you that this painting did not feel particularly cray loud. or loud yeah. in my house. I got louder, baby. But in this gallery with white walls and all this other art, you were like, what? Whoa, that painting's full of energy. That's crazy. And that was a really good learning for me also because I felt like I have a particular vision and eye and it was cool to think how my art potentially would look in someone's house who has a calmer vision than I do like it would be spectacular you know a statement piece in a room in a way that like in my house it just kind of fades into the walls you know or overwhelming yeah one or the other mom one or the other I also had to name the paintings as part of the exhibit 
you know, when you enter, you say like, what's the name of the painting, which was, I don't actually name paintings usually uh, unless I'm forced to. So it was interesting to have to think about what the names for the paintings were. So the abstract painting I ended up calling Saturday Night because for me, it's, it's jangly yeah. and it's Saturday night and yeah, you know, it's party. It's a party on a canvas. It is. And it was part of me also thinking about like Kandinsky did that whole series of paintings that were about how music looked. And mm -hmm. for me, it has some of that feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. And also, as soon as you told me the name you had selected, yeah. it seemed right. So that's when you know, it's the right name. And then the face that is a face, but doesn't appear to be a face, but you don't know if it's a face, but it's everybody's face. Um, I called After New Orleans, which for me is because I painted that right after coming home from New Orleans um, from the Golden Training there. But I also felt that the face in it, it could be when you looked at it after New Orleans, like you had partied there and it was like a late night because there's part of the eye that's kind of red and bloodshot. And then I also felt After New Orleans could be a statement about um, Katrina. After Katrina and, Hurricane you know, Katrina. and after all that kind of stuff that had happened there, but because it has a real emotional feeling. And I wanted to find a title that could resonate with multiple people in multiple ways. And that wouldn't be a pigeonhole thing. You know, if you call it Face Study 47, it's less. Or look, it's a face. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, I don't know. I, and I also thought like the colors for me that I had chosen certainly were New Orleans uh, influence. I used a lot of neons and bright, primary, bright gaudy. Yeah. And there was gold mica flakes in there and like all kinds of stuff that for me that was like the beads. So after New Orleans felt like a proper name for it. Well, I enjoyed seeing it and I'll have to go back and spy on people looking at it and i know well, i have to i have to work the door on so the gallery is open saturdays and sundays from two to four it's just a brief window um through for the next like three or four weekends and i have to work the door on the 13th so i'll be there at the gallery from two to four guarding the paintings and seeing if anybody uh looks at it wants to buy it whatever else anyway it was pretty exciting to win i it was completely unexpected and what a rush so you were also in the midst of and close to the end of yes no the hundred faces a day and i have close a question to the end so, of <laughs> no <laughs> i'm on i think today was day 29 ma oh i thought you were much further along you only wish Oh, well, so I'm a quarter of the way through. That's good. Um, I see that every time you're doing a face, it's like, here's a piece of paper and I'm going to fill it with a face. Yeah. Had you thought of changing that? You mean draw a tiny face in one corner? Or so something just... It it seems to me that right now you're very much concentrating on, okay, today I'm going to draw a face on this piece of paper without, because you're doing it in 15 minutes, start to yeah. finish. So you really don't have time to make a lot of decisions, but so have you thought about it outside of the 15 minutes or do you just restrict yourself to whatever happens during the 15 minutes? I try to restrict myself to whatever happens, happens. You know, and just be yeah. like, I I say, you're going to go with an impulse. So it's like, if I know that I'm going to use watercolor, then I get my watercolors out and my watercolor brush and I fill my thing with water and then I start my 15 minutes. Do you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. like stuff comes up where I'm like, oh crap, I need like, you know, yesterday I suddenly I was like, oh, I want markers. So I, I mean, luckily I know where the markers I wanted are, but it also it only took me a minute to go get them. But I didn't realize that until halfway through the drawing. Hmm. But I mean, generally speaking, I try to just start with an idea. I'm going to do a collage and what happens, happens. I'm going to do a continuous line drawing and what happens, happens. I'm going to paint on top of this magazine page. And then what happens, happens. Because I think part of the exercise or part of the import of the exercise, I guess, is that it's supposed to, at least for me with the 15-minute time limit, is be like a non-thinking, just doing 
experience and see what happens. And like today is actually a good example. I love today's face. I think it's my favorite face ever. I had this idea, which was I wanted to paint out a face. Usually I start with features. I draw the eyes first Uh and then I do the nose and then the lips and blah, blah. And I was like, I actually want to do the opposite. I was like, I want to block in like the face shape and then go back for the features later. And there are all sorts of places where in doing that, I felt like I got the proportions weird and I messed things up, but then I went in and I kind of fixed them. And like, if you really look at what happened, you know, sort of like the black lines that make the face aren't really where I originally had planned them to, but I think it's better now because Uh of that. And the reason I did that was just because I was like, I just came in with one idea. I'm going to take some acrylic paint. I'm going to block out the face, block out the face first and see what happens. And then I just kind of went. And now I have this whole idea in my head for stuff to do later and maybe to attack doing some work that way on a larger scale and in a different way. I mean, I think it's the same thing that happens to me in my art journal a lot, but this is just more in a focused way, which is, My art journal is a place where I just sort of scribble and try things and do an experiment. And then later on, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take that idea and move it big. Well, then it's working. I hope so. We'll see what happens after 100 days. I mean, the thing is, I've done plenty of projects that were for a month. So 30, 31 days. Yeah, 100 is a lot of days. 100 is more than three months. So that is a lot of days. And I'm about to, in May, I have three, maybe four trips. Yeah, so you have to be able to make it portable. Yes. So I think we're going to see a lot of ballpoint pen drawings and a lot of really simple – because, you know, in the end, like, I think the magic of drawing is that from nothing becomes something. You know, it was a napkin. Now Mm -hmm. there's a freaking face on it. That's amazing. So I look forward to the napkins. Yeah, well, you know, every airplane's the got a napkin. The hotel stationery. The... <laughs> the hotel stationery, the envelopes, I mean, whatever menus. it is. Yes, menus are a good one. I think it's, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna be careful and thoughtful about the pens and stuff that I pack. I have a little um, selfie stick tripod so that I can still film the goings on because I think it's fun to see the process of... Oh, I minutes. love those those fast forward things. I hadn't planned to make the videos part of the project that, you know, you would see the whole process from start to finish every single day. But I did it on the first few because I was feeling, you know, because, you know, when you start a new project, you're feeling ambitious. And then I was like, you know, this is now part of the project for better or for worse. And I feel like people would be deeply disappointed if suddenly it was like, oops, there's no video. You just have to believe that I did this in 15 minutes. Right. We you you groom us to expect certain things and then you have to deliver. Right? You teach people how to treat you. It's a rule. I think that's today's conversation. I think that is today's conversation. You don't have any sage words of wisdom you'd like to tag on here at the end. I have taught you say I've given you my sage words all through your life <laughs> and now I'm seeing the blossom. From the plant I have nurtured, for better or for worse, oh, this wow. is it. You you really fertilized that statement, my friend. <laughs> anyway, uh, as always, you can find me at balsresigns.typepad.com. Do leave us your comments or questions at balsresigns.com slash arting. We are going to do another reader mailbag show, or not reader, but listener mailbag show, where we um, go through all your questions and comments and talk about them. So we would love to get some of those comments or questions coming. Um, and if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast. That's A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.